everyone, and welcome to Building Local Power. I'm Stacey Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today on the show, we have Maurice VP Weeks, who is the co-executive director of the Action Center on Race and the Economy, also known as ACRE. Maurice also works with community organizations and labor unions on campaigns that go on the offensive against Wall Street to beat back their destruction of communities of color. Maurice, it's so nice to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be on. Thank you, Stacey. So I want to start, you know, Acre is a research organization and a campaign hub, and you work at the intersection of racial justice and Wall Street accountability. What is lurking at that intersection? Ooh, so much is lurking at that intersection. It might be helpful to just say a a bit of how um, Acre was started, because I think that might answer the questions. So I come to Acre from years of doing community organizing, most notably during the foreclosure crisis in California. Um, And my co-director comes from doing years of of, uh, research at a labor union around that same period of time. And I think we both shared this analysis that the way that um, organizations uh, then and even even now have talked about economic justice work. Um, the way that race has been incorporated in it has been really through the frame of disparate impact. So, you know, I remember saying at press conferences and putting in materials like, and the foreclosure crisis disparately impacts black and brown folks or something like that. And mm-hmm. while that is true, I mean, I think all your listeners probably know that that's obviously true. It also um, doesn't really quite tell the full story of intentionality and actual, you know, function and how the economy is working. So it's more than just disparate impact, um, but the like very design and baked into how our economy works is based on wealth extraction. Um, And those are the things that end up causing those disparate impacts. They're not just sort of like going into a mystery box and then popping out of the other end. Mm -hmm. So I think most most everything that um, that we experience as, you know, what we would identify as economic justice problems um, for black and brown folks are, are sort of can find their roots in this wealth extraction, wealth extraction model. And therefore, if we're going to change them, we really have to go after the entities and the forces and the messages and everything that that uh, that drive that model forward. So that's kind of why we started Acre. And that's that's the the very short answer of what lies at that at that uh, at that intersection. Yeah. So your analysis really is about something that is structural. Yeah. You know, that there's not this sort of disparate impact that's an add-on, but is really uh, at the at the, the center of structures of power. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's an analysis that's both built on on history. So you can sort of go back in the history of this country and the way that wealth has been generated is through extraction, mostly from from people of color um, mm-hmm. and sort of current day. If you sort of look at some of the wealthiest actors in, in the economy um, and sort of trace the dollars that are flowing up to them, you can find where that where they came from in either uh, labor that uh, folks of color are are doing and and not being paid fair wages or being exploited in other ways or um, other predatory schemes that are specifically targeting black and brown folks. So unfortunately, it's been an analysis that's rang true um, for the history of the country and still rings true now. Mm-hmm. So it's really baked into uh, yeah baked into it at a deep level. Yeah. What are some of the, I mean, in addition to this kind of notion of extraction, you talked about wages, 
um, and the accumulation up the chain of wealth. Um, you mentioned foreclosure, mm-hmm. and you know certainly in the aftermath of the financial crisis, this sort of systematic wiping out of the wealth of communities of color uh, through that foreclosure crisis. What are some of the other ways that maybe people wouldn't necessarily see about how Wall Street and the economic structure is really built on this extraction of value from people of color? Yeah, I think a lot of folks, particularly folks of color, do see a number of the examples that that you listed, like you know, um, extraction through their housing or through their through their labor. Um, it might get filtered into you know polls or public opinion in in other ways, but really that's you know that's kind of what they're expressing. I think probably one of the main ways that um, is less visible is how Wall Street preys on uh, public budgets in order to extract money from from people of color. So, um, you know, a lot of the work that Acre has done um, through our project, the Refund America project, has been focused on looking at city budgets, looking at predatory schemes that Wall Street has uh, has concocted with with um, inside of city budgets that funnel money out through either fines or fees um, or penalties or other ways. So, you know, you can take an example like the city of Chicago, uh, which had what are called, I won't get too wonky, but are what are called interest rate swaps, which basically, mm-hmm. you know, right after the foreclosure crisis, they um, Wall Street firms sold this deal to um, cities like Chicago promising to save them money over time. But after the economy crashed, those deals were actually really, really bad. Wall Street knew that this was going to happen and then didn't let the cities out of the deal. And it ends up costing millions and millions of dollars. Of course, when cuts need to happen in our cities because of these deals, they happen in communities of color. So we hear often that financial arrangements that the city is in are the reasons that we have to cut services to black and brown schools or not provide uh, you know, lighting or parks or some common decencies to black and brown neighborhoods. So I think that that's one of the least visible, um, immediately visible ways, but a huge way that mm-hmm. that um, wealth extraction and, and sort of Wall Street targeting of communities of color happens. Yeah, it's shocking to me that cities don't haven't taken more control of their finances. And I actually first knew about Acre because I've I've known your co-executive director, Saket Bhatti, for years around our kind of mutual interest in public banks as one way out of this. You know, the idea that cities can create their own municipal banks and use that to finance the things that they need to finance and not be in these these really just atrocious relationships with Wall Street. But it's also just surprising that they don't stand up to those relationships. You know, given what you've outlined about the essentially extractive nature of the economic model, how what do you how do you present like a vision of what the solution looks like? What is the economic model that that upends that and changes it into something else? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I think we can we can rely on sort of the public um, through things like public banks for the solutions like the solution we I sort of tend towards um, more democracy and more public control than not as a way to get out of way to get out of some of the more extractive models. Um, and I think one I mean, one of the things that's been uh, really promising to see is, you know, um, 
listeners will, will probably remember um, the string of bad press uh, weeks and months that Wells Fargo has recently had, both around um, their, you know, predatory sales goals that they had, and then their computer glitches, and it seems like they're, you know, they've, they've had a, a bad press week every week for the past six months or something like that. Um, and one of the things that this led to was lots of cities... Um, saying, you know, we're no longer going to bank with Wells Fargo. We're going to look for other options and ways to pull out of Wells Fargo. Many of the cities quickly found out that not only is it really, really difficult for them to pull out of Wells Fargo, the other places that they could possibly reasonably go were banks like Bank of America and Citibank, all which have really similar, if not the exact same practices as, as Wells Fargo. And this, you know, really from unexpected sources brought brought the conversation of public bank back up to the top as, hey, if we can't, right. if this uh, industry is just systematically extracting wealth from people, maybe we just need a new model. Um, and I, I find that kind of thing really, really promising um, and really an opening for us as as we reach this crisis in sort of these extractive models where we'll probably see a lot of them failing um, I hope that we start to tend towards looking for public options like that more than not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's so many places where that makes sense. Um, we think a lot about ways in which we can use policy at the local and state and ultimately federal level to structure markets and to insist on guardrails around business to better align business decisions with our values as a society. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We've also gotten to know each other a little bit lately over Amazon. And, you know, you can buy a lot of stuff on Amazon, like millions yes. and millions of products. Um, you can also buy Nazi and white supremacist propaganda, um, you know, for, for low, yes. low prices and, uh, and quick shipping. So yes. what is going on there? You guys did a big report last year that was really, I think, uh, made a big splash. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, like you said, Amazon is, is sort of the marketplace um, for nearly everything that 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 we buy. Um, and that's true both for sort of millennials like myself and for white supremacists and Nazis, unfortunately. So Acre, um, along with our uh, partners at the Partnership for Working Families, released a report last year that um, you know, really went through and documented some of the absolutely terrible things um, that you can buy on Amazon's website. Um, this report's called Delivering Hate, and folks can find it on, on our website, uh, acrecampaigns.org. Um, and some of the items, I would give your, your listeners a trigger warning, uh, some of the items are very disturbing. I mean, from Nazi swastikas or other Nazi insignias to full Nazi uniforms to violent Confederate texts and literature to all sorts of awful, awful things. Um, these also were um, pretty clearly against Amazon's very own uh, policies to not sell hate speech. We uh, went through and documented um, a, a great deal of this stuff that we could pretty easily find on the website. And um, it caused Amazon to take some of it down immediately after, after the report was released. Unfortunately, even today, you can still find some of the, some of the same, same things on the website. And, you know, I think one of the things that it points to for there's, there's many problems with, um, with Amazon's role in our economy and our country. 
one of the things it really it really shows is that Amazon is really too big to deal with problems like this. They have a hard time really managing how to keep these things off of their website. Um, it's either that or they just really don't want to. They uh, really don't want to develop the algorithms or the or hire the staffing to keep these things off of our website. And really, both of those are just unacceptable to us. Mm-hmm. Um, shouldn't be. Um, lifting up some of the worst hate speech in the country on the main platform for buying and selling things in the country. Yeah. You know, having talked to a lot of companies that sell on the platform and sort of small businesses and individual sellers, it's remarkable the degree to which Amazon is constantly surveilling them and how immediately it intervenes when they do something that it doesn't like or that's against its interests. You know, for example, as a seller, you're not allowed to have email communication directly with customers. You have to go through Amazon system. And if you communicate certain kinds of things, such as your own URL, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Through that communication, Amazon immediately is in touch with you and you, they might suspend your account and so on. So you look at that level of kind of minute control over what's happening on the platform. And then you look at other things, white supremacist propaganda, you look at the counterfeit stuff that's on the platform mm-hmm. and they don't seem to have the same ability to police it or they sort of selectively police it. Um, and so it's hard for me not to conclude that they've just decided it's in their interest, either because it's just cheaper to be lazy or that they actually they profit off this stuff. Yeah. And I think that's that's part of the argument that we're making in, in the report that, you know, we it's really hard to track exactly what the profits Amazon has made from this kind of speech, mainly because we can't really document how much of it is being sold. We just know it's a good deal, a great, a great lot mm-hmm. of it. But we know that they are making some money. And, and like you said, there, there are other things that they've taken down from their website immediately under the same policies that we think that they should be taking down this hate speech on. So, yeah, so I, I, I think that it's right to, to sort of call to question how Amazon is really enforcing these policies. I think it's very important to do specifically for Amazon because they are such a, a large marketplace. They're kind of the marketplace in, mm-hmm. in the country and they're requesting so much from so many of our um, cities and states. Um, you have to sort of be able to police hate speech if you're going to be this large and request this much from from the public in our view. Um, yeah. So- yeah, that's right. You're listening to Maurice B.P. Weeks, co-executive director of the Action Center on Race and the Economy. We'll be back after a short break, and we're going to talk with Maurice more about how he got into the work that he does and maybe talk a little bit more about Amazon. Hi, everyone. This is Lisa Gonzalez. I edit the Building Local Power podcast, and I produce the show along with Hibba Murray and Zach Fried. I'm just one of a team of people working to bring the show to you twice a month. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a donation to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. As you may have noticed, we don't have any ads on this show, but we do depend on your financial support. Donations not only underwrite this podcast, but they're an important source of funding for our work and all of the technical assistance and help that we provide to communities across the country. So please take a moment to go to ILSR.org slash donate. That's ILSR.org slash donate. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can share this podcast with your friends. 
Follow us on social media and help make other people aware of our resources and the work that we do. Thanks so much for listening. Now back to the show. Maurice, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you got into this work. I know that you did some organizing work before and, you know, have been involved in various campaigns. Tell me about, like, how you were drawn to doing social justice work. My mom is a school teacher and has been really involved in her union since um, I was a kid, basically. Um, and both of my parents really taught sort of the value, not just of, of sort of like leftist values, but really that you really do have to fight for equity and fight against mm-hmm. injustices. Um, and that was sort of so much baked into my history that uh, even when I was choosing, you know, which college to go to, I remember really looking at the activist and organizing, uh, you know, values of each school that I went to. What are some of the groups that are on campus that are doing mm-hmm. and organizing work? Um, so I did, you know, I ended up at, at, at school. Um, my alma mater probably wouldn't like that I said that I probably spent way more time doing organizing work in college than I did doing actual school work <laughs> in college. <laughs> right. Where did you go to school? I went to Swarthmore College outside of mm-hmm outside of Philadelphia. Um, so after that, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to um, have an opportunity to work with uh, the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment in California. Um, and this was right sort of at the tail end of the foreclosure crisis. So, you know, I was thrown into helping black and brown families organize to really save their home. Um, and while I was always interested in this work, I think that really deepened my analysis very quickly and brought some some experiences right to the forefront for me in a way that they never had before. Like I, I remember in the many instances where people really did lose their foreclosure fight, them having to like move all of their stuff into the ACE office that day because they really had nowhere else to go. Um, and this all because of, you know, an unjust totally, in some instances, illegal foreclosure that that was happening. Um, so that really like deepened my really commitment and how hard I, I was fighting for things, really, um, and deepened my understanding of just like how terrible things can be because of how the economy is, is set up. So I, I, I cut my teeth doing real um, community organizing work and now run an organization that does campaigns and research and you know, one one thing that I, I certainly learned during organizing is um, that those two elements are are very important, and you sort of can't move forward in broad scale ways unless you have a plan to make some of your organizing work connect to other things. So, like a real campaign plan and the research that shows you really who the main targets that you should be should be fighting are. So, yeah, that's how I got to to what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. That's great. How are you feeling about where we are right now as you think about the way the economy is structured as an extractive force for black and brown communities, the way in which concentrated power is undermining democracy? (laughs) I'm sort of feeling like there's a way in which I feel better about where we are because I feel like we're actually talking about the real thing now in a way that I don't feel like we were, uh, and I mean we as like the sort of community of social justice organizations, civil society organizations five or 10 years ago. I feel like we were much more stuck around sort of symptoms and incremental change and, you know, kind of how do we fix this? 
And it feels like the conversation now is about the real thing. Do you feel like more hopeful or do you lie awake at night and feel like we're really, this is all going to turn out very badly? Yeah, I feel like I'm, yeah, there's there's sort of a, a weird uh, back and forth mix of the two of those is, is what I feel. I mean, in some ways, especially after the 2016 election and, and the couple of years that have followed, seeing, um, you know, economic justice fights that we had won being peeled away and just like not only economic justice fights that we've won being peeled away, but really um, the right advancing in their economic policies and theory pretty rapidly. And just knowing what that is going to mean for for black and brown folks is is really troubling to me. Um, mm-hmm. So I, that that certainly certainly keeps me up at night knowing that, like, you know, things like the CFPB are being gutted and, um, you know, a, a, a tax bill that's just going to funnel more and more money up. And yeah, things like that are really troubling to me. And then at the same time, I mean, we are right now having a like nationwide debate on whether being a billionaire is a moral thing at <laughs> all, which, you know, that's that's actually a, an important conversation to have. Um, that money has come from other folks in this country um, and it is being concentrated in a way that I that I and and. Um, you know, thousands, millions of other people think is is unjust. And, and that's an important conversation to have. And there are more and more public figures that that are sort of picking up that platform of, you know, we need to really restructure the economy in bigger and bolder ways. One of my favorite uh, new Congress members, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez comes to mind with you know, really proposing huge, big, bold ideas, you know, in her freshman term, which is, which is incredible. Um, And even, um, even candidates that have been around for a while longer, and may not have been, um, you know, as critiquing the economy as, as radically as someone like um, AOC, we're seeing some of the messages of critique even seep into their language. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so you see these, you know, Democratic Party, you know, folks who might have been to the center left before saying things like Medicare for all or we need to make sure farm is not out of control or all of these other things that are talking about really reeling in the nature of the economy. Um, and that's really hopeful to me. Um, that means that we're, you know, in some ways we're heading we're heading in the in the right direction. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a mix. Some days I feel I feel really good and really inspired, and other days I feel like we're we're screwed and we need to do a lot more yeah. faster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I feel the same way. And of course, like the climate kind of hanging hanging over everything. Right. You know, it's interesting. I I too feel it's like AOC and the big proposals and the way that people are like, no, let's let's put big things on the table. Let's yeah. really talk about it in, in like big structural ways. What's been fascinating to me to watch, like especially like the billionaires thing, how the establishment, how the powers that be have reacted, the, the degree to which they're affronted by this and the, yeah. the way in which uh, politicians and others are sort of discovering that people across the political spectrum 
want to tax billionaires at a huge rate and right. think right. this, you know, idea of Medicaid for all sound or Medicare for all sounds like a great idea. Um, you know, I mean, there's really a lot of popular support for those ideas. Right. Um, and I, you know, it's sort of interesting to watch people squirm and uh, Howard Schultz, is that his name from Starbucks wanting us to refer to the wealthy as people of wealth. Right. right. Don't, <laughs> don't call him a billionaire. Yeah. Right. He's a person yeah. of wealth. Right. Yeah. Right. That has been really interesting, and um, it's sort of indicative of, of a little bit of a crisis that they're they're facing too. I mean, I think that there's this is a part of the American dream is like one day I will be wealthy and I will be a billionaire, um, and that's kind of been like sort of baked into what most Americans think, a good deal of Americans think and and believe. So I think it's probably really disconcerting to see that shifting for um, people who are of wealth, billionaires like Howard Schultz and um, other millionaires and people who are power brokers to see the importance of the American dream fading away and the importance of everyone really being treated fairly and having everything that they need to survive rising up probably is really disconcerting. I totally understand why he's nervous about it. Yeah. I'm surprised that they don't seem to have any intention of getting out in front of it in any way. I mean, they seem on like there's a sort of ner nervousness, but they also seem like Bezos. They seem kind of oblivious to like the consequences that this is untenable yeah. and it's going to come apart in some way. It's either going to happen through people organizing and restructuring the system and recovering democracy and creating our vision of an equitable society or it's going to hit the rocks in a really right. nasty way. And yeah, I, I imagine that once, you know, you get to that level of wealth, like a Jeff Bezos, there probably aren't a lot of people around him that are critiquing him very often. Um, mm -hmm. So it's probably, you know, in, in some ways, I bet it's a relatively politically lonely place. And I mean that in the most negative way possible for him. <laughs> right. You know, there's just there's only people saying that everything that he's doing and thinking is correct and right. And uh, his obliviousness probably comes from the fact that, like, he's he's not really uh, paying attention to what other folks are, are saying that much. And, yeah, I, that's not going to that's not going to work for very long for him, I don't think. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Well, we often end the show by asking for a reading or watching or listening recommendation or two or three. So what would you recommend for listeners? Sure. Yeah. Um, so my staff actually, as you may imagine, for a staff of researchers, we're, we're a staff of nerds. We do a lot of reading and listening to um, things relating to the to the economy. Um, we have a Slack channel that's dedicated to it. Um, so I will highlight some that I recently dropped on to the Slack channel. Um, mm -hmm. I think are, are really interesting. I'm, I'm um, doing a lot of reading on uh, sort of like historical roots of some uh, economic financialization practices. Um, so one is uh, a book, Bankers and Empire. The short review is that it's about Wall Street practicing some of their uh, current practices on uh, the Caribbean in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It's by Professor Peter James Hudson. I just thought it was really, really good, and I, I had no idea about any of it. What, uh, just to give us what, some examples of those kinds of practices, are they sort of parallels to what you see now? Yes, some of the, the sort of core, like, banking fees and trade regulations and... 
Um, other stuff that that like U.S. banks are really that we think of as kind of like the core practices of banks before they were sort of um, tried and practiced here in the U.S. There were things that you know banks did in in the Caribbean. Um, it's I mean it's all based on sort of debt, which is the main main Acres main sort of focus often. Um, I don't want to blow some of the examples because they're really, really good. Um, Uh And we'll really, I want people to have their minds blown. Um, That's great. So that's Banking and Empire. Yeah, Bankers and Empire, yeah, by Peter James Hudson. Um, uh, And then the other book that I'll recommend is uh, another book called Bankers and Bolsheviks. So it's about international finance during the Russian Revolution. It's a part of the world that I don't really have very good knowledge about uh, how finance worked during that period of time. Um, I just started just started reading it. I, people can read along with me, and the author is Hassan Malik. Other people on our staff are reading Rebel Cities by David Harvey um, mm-hmm. and uh, Crashed, uh, which is about the 10 years after the economy. Um, and lots of other stuff. I wish I could add all of your listeners to our <laughs> to our <laughs> of the what are you reading because um, there's a lot of stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should start like a I don't know a thread on Twitter or something that people yeah. can contribute to. That'd be fun. Yeah. yeah. So I also want to ask you about sneakers. Um, you know, because <laughs> every time I see you, you have uh, fantastic sneakers on. And I guess, you know, from the perspective of someone who's always thought of uh, running shoes as like a mundane functional <laughs> item that you wear to the gym, you know, where where would one begin, you know, if you're kind of interested in exploring the fashion side of, of running shoes? So yes, so for for the rest of the listeners, I have a ridiculous amount of sneakers. It's kind of like one of my it's it's my vice. Um, you know, I don't really smoke cigarettes or anything like that. So this is like kind of how I I spend my vice money. Um, yeah, I would have I would I would start with just uh, buying some really fun colored sneakers because I think that mm-hmm. that's usually the thing that is the gateway drug. Like, <laughs> but I I was once like you, Stacy, where I just just only bought sort of you know. Uh, sneakers for the gym and they were usually just black or gray and I think that all changed when I got like a really nice shiny pair of very colorful sneakers that everyone then commented on when they saw it um I feel like that's that's the that's the gateway drug for sneaker purchases that's great do you wear all of your sneakers like in a rotation or <laughs> no, no I have I even have some that I've never worn before and probably oh, wow won't um <laughs> I, have a, I have a lot I have way too many I, I know and I keep telling myself I'm gonna stop buying them and then I keep seeing cool ones and keep buying them so <laughs> nice well maybe next time you see me I will have like crossed the threshold I hope so I hope so yeah <laughs> thanks so much for taking the time out today it was great to talk with you oh, it's my pleasure thank you so much Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. If you like this podcast, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is edited by Lisa Gonzalez and produced by Lisa along with Hibba Murray and Zach Freed. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. 
For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacey Mitchell. I hope you join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. <laughs>